familiar um, context in the same context as that those last lines of was one was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see we're gonna have a look at the difference um, from before we came to know Christ and the the blessings that we receive now that we do know him as believers um, and this morning we sing from Psalm chapter 46, we did that song that didn't rhyme, and Ken told everybody this wasn't going to rhyme, and it's okay, and it still bothers me. Okay, Singing a song that doesn't rhyme is like free verse poetry. It doesn't make sense to me. I have to rhyme because it's the only way I can make anything sound good. That's just how it is for me. But what I love about us doing that song, and it may have been weird, and it may have been different for some of us, me included, obviously, is that with different songs that people write, you can kind of see things and go, I kind of disagree with that, or I wouldn't have worded it that way, or theologically, I may have a different opinion. But when we sing from the book of Psalms, we sing Psalm 46, there's nothing that you can disagree with as we sing that song. If you disagree with anything that, was, that we sang through Psalm 46 or any part of that, we are disagreeing with what it is that God has said, and that makes us wrong. It's just incredible because usually we, we tend to sing a lot of songs that are written just by other people. We sing songs that, are, um, that God had put on someone else's heart, and they write it. But again, it's fallible man writing a song, and there's things that we can pick apart and disagree with. But with that song, absolutely nothing in it is theologically incorrect because it's God who is the author. And that's why I was so thankful to do it. And because of that, I can bear it not rhyming. Because of that. Uh, this morning, our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Now, I told the men this morning, my goal is to get through the whole chapter of, um, of chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. I also said there's a good chance I stop at, at verse 5 and I, because of time. Um, there's a very good chance I'll only get through verse 5, and if that happens, that's okay. I'll pick it up again at some other point. Um, I'm happy to have my dad here with me. Uh, he came to visit mainly for the NFL draft, also to see the grandkids, and as a side note, came to see me. Um, I was kind of, I'm kind of last on the list of priorities. He knows that, I know that, and that's fine. Um, he's happy to be with his grandkids, um, but it's great to have him here this morning. Um, if you see him, give him a hug. He'll hate it. He's not, not like me in that way, but again, he is me in 30 years. Um, it's an incredible thing to look forward to for me. But again, it's a privilege to have him here um, as I'm preaching this morning. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And in chapter 1, again, this is the first epistle of Paul. He's writing to this church. He's writing to them not long after he had left. And he's offering correction as we always see him doing. Uh, Paul is certainly one that didn't tolerate uh, failure to obey the word of God in the church. He would see it and he would correct it. In this current age where we, see, we hear a lot of discussion about tolerance and acceptance and all of these things for whatever it is that we're supposed to tolerate or accept. But it's interesting because Paul had a very different idea. In the church, we generally get criticized for being um, either too intolerant or too tolerant at all. But what we see here is with this example of Paul, he's rebuking the church because they were engaging in sexual immorality and drunkenness. They misunderstood the grace of God. They practiced a belief that said, 
We can sin all we want because we know the truth that God extends grace. So therefore, if we sin, it's okay because God will give us grace. Now, is that true that God's grace covers everything? Is it true that God's grace is present? Absolutely. But Romans 6 also tells us it's foolish to continue in sin just so that grace can abound. That's not the point of grace. The point of grace isn't do what you want and you're getting out of jail free anyway, so it's okay. That's not the point of grace. And he's writing to this church and he's telling them, he's saying there's things that are going on that are not okay. And while this does not change my love for you, this does not change any of that, this has to be corrected. You are representing God. And when we do these things, when you engage in the sexual immorality, in the drunkenness, and the repetitive sin, you are displaying God in that. And that is not a proper portrayal of God. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 12 shows that there is competing groups for leadership in this church. There was strife and division within this church. Can you imagine today in our church if there were four different groups that were fighting for leadership? That's a lot of strife. The groups wouldn't be very large, but wouldn't there be so much contention? We look at the current political season, there's basically two main groups that we've divided it into, Republican and Democrat, and look at how much strife there is just with two groups. Can you imagine four? How much more conflict in the home is there when there's four kids instead of two? The home with no kids sounds incredibly peaceful. <laughs> My parents' home, after I finally left, peaceful home. A lot less talking going on at the house. These, these groups were battling with their different philosophies. One group would say this, another this, and it continued all the way down to these four groups. This one church had multiple divisions jockeying for leadership. Instead of uniting under what it is that the gospel preached, they were making up their own. They were engaging in philosophy and their own wisdom and their own thought. And one person said, hey, I'm pretty sure I can do this better than what Jesus taught, better than what the gospel is. Because in my thinking, this is how I believe we should do this. This is what I think everything means. And it's easily applicable today because we have this world that says, if you can't rationalize it, if you can't understand it, then what's the point of it? We, have very, we try to be very intellectual in everything. We can't just accept something as being true. Because if I disagree with it, it's not true. And I've talked about this before, the postmodern thought that truth is whatever I think it is. That I get to determine what is true. That you can tell me it's raining outside, and I look outside and it's pouring, and I don't want that to be true, so I say, that's not right. It's not raining. And sometimes we do that, don't we? It's not raining again today, because it's rained all week, and I just want to go outside. We live in a world that says, you determine what is true. And sadly, this was appearing in the Corinthian church, in their preaching especially. Paul is reminding them in chapter 1 of their call to be holy, of God's grace, of his faithfulness, of their fellowship, the way that it was intended to be with unity. That in fact it was Christ and not Paul who was the one who was crucified. See, some people were uplifting Paul to the point of being a celebrity and saying, well, I was baptized by this person, or I, I sat under Paul and I learned all of this from him. And Paul is out here saying, stop mentioning me. I am not the one who died. It was Christ who was crucified, not me. An incredible point. 
He reminds them to glory in Christ and not in himself. And one of the reasons I love this letter to the Corinthian church is because it so easily is transferable to the church of today, to the world that we live in, because the mindset of the world today is you determine what is true, whatever you think is right, that's what we're going to do, and philosophy dominates over the word of God in the world today. It's an incredible thing that has kind of infiltrated a lot of churches, and we can see this depending on who it is that we're listening to and what kind of preaching that we hear and what kind of conversations we have. But what we come down to what Paul is going to be emphasizing is this idea of authority. Again, while he had authority as an apostle, he did not claim to be God. He did not want the attention. He wanted every attention, every bit of glory, every bit of praise to be only for God, only for Christ. And we're going to see that again as we get into to chapter 2. And some of these warnings that Paul gives is an incredible um, incredible warning for both myself, and I know it is for Pastor Ben as well, because as someone who preaches in a public setting, who preaches at a church and who is called a pastor or a preacher, there's an incredible amount of responsibility that comes with that. Incredible amount of responsibility. And if I say when I was younger, that just means before I was 24. Now, I understand I'm still fairly young in that. I get that. Um, but as a young man, to have this, this idea of people listening to me as you all are now, there's two ways that I could look at that. I can say, wow, this is incredible. I can just say anything, and they're going to believe it, and they're just going to listen. And I could take that and say, wow, you can be really proud. And it's exciting to be able to share the Word of God with people. It is incredibly exciting. But there's also parts of it that scare me to death because I know I am held accountable for what it is that I teach. Pastor Ben is accountable for what it is that he teaches. And when we get up here and we, we share with you, we open up the Word of God, we are not speaking from our own authority. I do not say, men and women of Glenwood Springs Baptist Church, I, as a 24-year-old male who thinks he knows a lot, but really knows very little, am telling you, this is the way things should be. There is no authority in what I have to say in and of myself, in and of my flesh. And we're going to see this because Paul, as an apostle, is saying this. He understood authority is not just his own, but the authority comes from God. We're going to see, and we need to know this truth before we get into it, that the authority of God and the authority of the Word of God should be ever-present in each and every one of our lives as believers. Not authority because of experience or because of knowledge, but because of the Word of God. And that we only have authority, and I only have authority, and Pastor Ben only has authority up here when we stand under that authority of God. Again, it's an incredible privilege, but it's also an incredible warning to us. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to see this contrast of, of the wisdom of men, and we're going to see a contra that contrasted with the wisdom of God. We're going to see this, and we're going to see that they can in no way inhabit the same life. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's warning the believers. Again, he's writing to believers, and he's telling them things that need to be corrected. Starting in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined to know anything among you, 
save Jesus Christ and him crucified. From the very beginning of chapter 2, Paul is coming to the Corinthians under the authority of God. Not with his excellency of speech, not as a great public speaker, not as someone with great original ideas that are all his own, that have never been spoken before, but he's coming under the authority of God. He's coming with the testimony of the gospel. And in verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's painfully clear in all of his letters what his goal was. His goal was to preach Christ and him crucified in every area. Now, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, we know about his ability to speak publicly. Again, he said he's not, he didn't come with excellency of speech. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, says, For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Paul was not viewed as some great public speaker, someone that you just wanted to sit and hear him talk because of the fancy words he would use and because of his, his vast knowledge and all of these things. His letters were weighty, and his words weren't anything that were, that were excellent. But what is it? He presents himself, and he's writing to this church under the authority of God, declaring the testimony of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. In our conversations, do we emphasize Christ crucified? Do we emphasize that when we have spiritual conversations? When someone is asking us, who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? All of these things. Do we lay out the truth for them clearly and plainly and speak about Christ and the cross, about his death, burial, and resurrection? Or do we find different ways to present it? Okay, well, you have to understand, at the beginning, the earth was created, and here's how all of this happens. And we go through all of these other ways, and if there's time, we get to Christ. Because a lot of what I was taught is, here's how to explain the gospel, and to make it sound good, and to make sense. And there's a whole lot of other things in there besides Christ and Him crucified. There's a lot of it. Look at verse 3 and 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul came humbly with the goal of speaking the truth of Christ, not to use enticing words, not to do something that would be an attractional setting, not to say, hey, come listen to me. You'll be entertained. You're going to hear lots of good speech. You're going to sit under someone who is a great speaker. He's simply saying, listen to me as I preach Christ. That was his only goal. His only goal was to share Christ with the people. And again, he's writing to a Christian church, and he's explaining this to them. And we see the aim of his ministry in verse 5, and this should be the aim of any pastor's ministry, of any teacher, of any believer, as they minister in their life. Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We see in verse 5 this very clear distinction, as there's that contrast that's kind of being being opened up, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
That language there shows that it can't be both. You cannot have your faith in the wisdom of man as well as in the power of God. They combat too much. We're going we're gonna to look at this. He's saying that if you try to base your saving faith on the wisdom of man, it ceases to be saving faith. It's an incredible point. It's something that's incredibly important to our lives because if we're basing all of our faith in what it is that we can think of, what we can create, what it is that just that we believe without acknowledging the truth, saving faith ceases to be just that. The content of our saving faith is regarded as foolishness by the wisdom of man. The Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. This saving faith is shown in verse 2. What's the whole foundation of it? For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The wisdom of man cannot accept the crucifixion of Christ. It cannot um, agree with any part of the salvation process. It cannot understand grace. It has nothing to do with it. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I love this section of verses. It opens up with the powerful understanding, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. This understanding of the cross. And in verses 19 and 20, it's saying that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. He's made it foolish. The Corinthian church found themselves to be wise. They, were, they, were in this, they had these philosophies. They were very good thinkers. They were very proud of themselves. They deemed themselves wise, but what is it that God is saying? They're foolish. Because they don't understand it's, it's man's wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. It's foolish. God made the wisdom of the world foolish through basing his saving faith in a manner that is offensive to that wisdom. What does the world tell you today? What is the wisdom of the world? What is the conversation that the world has? It says, get whatever it is that you want. Be a consumer. You don't need to produce anything unless that means that you're going to get a lot back. Everything is for you. Everything is made for you to enjoy, to consume and enjoy. Do everything for yourself. Why would you have to sacrifice something of yourself? Everyone should be serving you, shouldn't they? We're man. We're almighty on this earth. We are it. There's nothing greater than us. Everything in the world is set up to serve you, for you to be a consumer. The American culture is very much not ideal for godliness. It's just not. I love, I love the country, okay? I don't want anyone to interpret that as, wow, this guy hates America, he can leave, okay? I love it. I love that we get to enjoy the freedoms. I am so thankful that we have the opportunity this morning to sit in a place like this and worship with other believers, to be able to open up the Word of God and to be able to do this together. It's an incredible privilege. But the consumerism that takes place in our country is not conducive 
for godliness. We're told to look good and sound good, and that's the goal. In your preaching, don't say anything that could be offensive, because Jesus never offended anybody. Pastor Ben's going um, through the study. We're seeing Jesus' whole ministry. We're seeing everything that he did. In most of the conversations, somebody was offended. Because when confronted with truth, it's offensive. And there's no way around it. But so much of what we hear is to look and sound good, to save yourself at all costs, to do what's best for you. How can you get power? How can you get money? How can you get people to like you? But what's so incredible is that God's plan of salvation is so contrary to that. Do we really understand what it looks like? This, this, this idea of salvation, um, kind of in a, in a summary of it, salvation came through the execution of a lowly, unimpressive Jewish carpenter. To the world, that's how it's viewed. A lowly carpenter who was unimpressive, who didn't look great, his death brought salvation. That's a very unimpressive story. By the wisdom of man and by our standards of looking and sounding good and gaining power, who is this guy? He was born in a manger. He's not a king. Why would we listen to anything that he has to say? He has no power. He has no authority. He has no money. He has nothing. He's wandering all the time with a other group of men. What is impressive about him? The whole plan of salvation is nothing resembling the wisdom of the world. Move down to verse 6. And this is where we see the contrast. We see moving from the wisdom of the world, and it's talking about this, and then we get into this, this great truth about the wisdom of God and how it is that we're able to, to have this and who gets it and who doesn't. Verse 6, How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Ye not, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that came to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In verse 6, that word perfect means mature. But it's saying that we as believers, we, we do speak wisdom. If we have Christ, if we, if we have the Spirit, we do speak wisdom. We, we're able to speak the, this mystery. As it says in verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto glory. See, it's important because, again, he's writing to this church which was flush with, with false teachers, and he's saying, Preaching man's wisdom and power is not the way to go. There's nothing about this that reacts, that reacts well with God's wisdom. They were boasting in their power. And again, the language in verses 6 through 8 is very specific. It's very pointed because the people in this church wanted to be like the princes and like the kings and like the rulers at their time. They wanted to have power. They were already claiming to have the power that God has set aside for a future glory. They were already claiming to be rulers. They were already claiming to be rich with their blessings. Already claiming all of these things. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, For, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, 
And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The world does not view humility as a trait for success. You have to be proud. You have to be greedy. That's the only way you can be successful. Only way you're going to succeed in business is if you have that greed. You can't simply do it through biblical principles. You can't be giving and be successful in business. You can't do it honestly. Here's all the ways that you can misuse the business practices to gain an advantage. What would be foolish? Everything that's right in business, right? He's, he's saying that these things, um, humility isn't looked upon as, um, as well. Uh, meekness, right? Power under control. Yes, you have power, but you do not always have to exert it over everybody and rule over them. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Chapter 4, verse 8. Now ye are full. He's, there's, a, there's a hint of irony as he's writing this. Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. Again, they were, they were preaching these things about their power and boasting in themselves. And he's saying, well, yeah, now, now you're full. You have all this power. You have all of these things. You're doing great without us apostles. You're doing great without the teaching of what it is that God wanted us to do. You're doing great without the power of the cross. There's the irony with it. They were claiming these things which weren't yet to come. And in verse 8, it says that if, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8, you know these people that you're looking forward to uh, to being like these people that you're, you're following after, had they had the wisdom of God as opposed to their own wisdom, they would not have killed and crucified the Lord of glory. The Jews didn't have it. The Gentiles didn't have it. These people that you're looking after, had they had the wisdom from God, had they been doing this the right way, had they looked to God instead of themselves, they would not have killed the Lord of glory, would not have killed Jesus Christ. Isn't that a strong warning to us? Because as I was reading through this and studying and, and kind of preparing for it, it's, it, it kind of caught, it take, took me back a little bit, just that close of verse 8, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And it kind of made me do the, um, the always reflective uh, sermon preparation of, okay, if I had been there at the time, would I have been looking after myself, seeking in my own wisdom, seeing a man who was unimpressive? He didn't look anything special. Would I have seen him and the words that he was preaching and said, yeah, that's absolutely the Son of God. I believe everything that he's saying. Or would I have said, How, this guy cannot be the Son of God. He came in on a donkey. He was born in a manger. He doesn't look that great. He has no power. He's, he's talking about how he has no food and nowhere to lay his head. How could this person be the Son of God? How can it be him? There's nothing about that that is impressive or that says to me, King, Lord, Ruler. Nothing about that. But as we saw in verse 27 of chapter 1, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
foolish things, the humility. Flip over to John chapter 5, verses 42 and 44. You're saying, but I know you, that ye not have the love of God in you. I came in my Father's name, and ye received me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? We can't believe on Christ and Jesus as our Lord and we're striving to maintain our own glory. He came in the name of the Father. He did not come simply in His own name. But He's saying if another was to come in His own name, you would, you would follow Him. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. We're seeing, we see an interaction here. And as we always do, we see Jesus... Um, we see the leaders trying to catch him in a trap, and Jesus always finds a way to get out of it. His authority is being questioned. And in verse 27 through 33, it says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority dost thou, doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? So they're questioning his authority. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. So now he's flipping it back to them. Okay, before I answer your question, you answer my question. Um, parents do this all of the time. It drives me nuts, right? <laughs> Verse 31, And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say, from heaven, he will say, why then did he not believe him? Okay, so they're saying, well, we can't say from heaven, because then Jesus will say, if you're acknowledging that I came from heaven, why wouldn't you believe? Verse 32, but if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. Well, we can't say of men, because these people like John, they viewed him as a prophet, and again, these people might rebel and may want to hurt us. So they're finding themselves in a trap. So they, in their, in their own wisdom and their, their great thinking, found in verse 33, and they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. That's the, I don't know. I don't know. This is the response I've always given my father for pretty much every question. It's a running joke in our family. He asked me anything and I just say, I don't know. That's, that's the response. They're saying, well, I don't know. We can't say. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do this, these things. So he doesn't, give them, he doesn't give them an out. He doesn't give them an answer. But notice their response in their own wisdom. Did they even consider what the truth would be? No consideration for what the actual answer is. Their response in their conversations is, Well, if we say this, we're in trouble. And if we say this one, we're in trouble. These are the leaders, the priests, the scribes. They didn't even consider what the true answer would be. They had no desire to find the truth. It was, how do we look best? How do we avoid being ridiculed? How do we avoid, we see that. They didn't even consider the truth. And Jesus 
doesn't give them the way out at the end of it. But again, we're seeing this contrasted, this, this wisdom of men which says, do what's best for you. How can you look the best? How can you avoid looking bad? Verse 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Quotation again from the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, verse 4. God's truth is not discoverable by ear or by eye or by the wisdom of man. We see that we cannot come to the wisdom of God, come to the full knowledge of God simply on our own. Verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Remember last week, Pastor Ben talked about the Spirit of God and, and this peace that passes all understanding, and we're, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we talked a lot about the role that the Holy Spirit plays. One of those roles that we see here is that in verse 10 that he reveals reveals the wisdom of God to us. Are you thankful for the Spirit? Are you thankful for the Spirit in your life? Because we're thankful to God. We say, God, thank you for creating the world. Thank you for sending your Son. We say, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross. Thank you for atoning for sins. But are we thankful for the Spirit who is incredibly active in your life as a believer? Do we understand all of the things that the Holy Spirit does on a daily basis in our lives? It's often, I think Pastor Ben mentioned this, kind of the forgotten part of that trinity, right? There's three parts. It's not two and a half when we remember the other guy. The wisdom that saves us, the saving faith that comes to us is only found through the Spirit, this wisdom that's given to us upon salvation. And notice, the Spirit knows all things. At the end of verse 10, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yeah, the deep things of God. Spirit knows everything. Why is that? Because the Spirit is God. Knows everything. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? At the time that we trust in Christ for salvation, the Spirit enters our body, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where He baptizes us into the body of Christ in chapter 12, seals us in Ephesians chapter 1, and is promised to remain with us in John chapter 14, which we talked about last week. I just want to go over that again, because when we look at the role of the Spirit, look at everything that the Spirit does, enters us, where we are now indwelt with the Spirit. Everywhere we go, all the things that we do. Baptizes us into the body of Christ. That's incredible. Being baptized into the body of Christ seals us. Ephesians chapter 1. Seals us. That means we're locked in. We're not taking ourselves out of it. And as we saw in John chapter 14, verse 26, promises to remain with us. It says, but the Comforter, this is Jesus speaking to his followers, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. 
Again, just this, the incredible truth of the role of the Spirit in this wisdom. Let's look at verse 12. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things to the spiritual. Again, the Spirit teaches us. This was promised in John chapter 14, verse 26. As Jesus was leaving, he said, A comforter will come. Someone will come and be with you. He will teach you all things. He will bring all things to remembrance. And we know that this is done, the inspiration of Scripture. And again, the Spirit which indwells us teaches us all of these things. And as we, as we battle against the flesh and as we go through our daily lives, going through these battles, trying to figure out, am I, am I striving after the wisdom of man or am I striving after the wisdom of God? The Spirit all along is with us. We're not left alone, and that's an incredible promise that we've received, that we are not left alone. Because we were once alone. And where, has that, where did that lead us? We were on our way to death without the Spirit, without Christ, without God. Verses 14 through 16, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there's revelation as we, get, we, we realize the Spirit of God and we realize this wisdom and then there's the inspiration and there's the teaching and then there's the illumination that we have the discernment. I am so thankful for the discernment of the Spirit. So thankful for that. And at the close of verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. This doesn't mean that we're perfect. And again, when I mentioned perfect in the previous verses, it's not sinless infallible, but it's a spiritually mature. And so as we look at this, as we look at chapter 2, we're seeing Paul writing to a church and he's cautioning them and he's, he's asking them, what is it that you are striving for? What is it that you're looking to? Are you looking towards the wisdom of man or are you looking to gain the wisdom of God? Are you, are you living in the flesh or are you living in the spirit? Romans 8 perfectly creates this, this tension of life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Life in the flesh leading to death. Life in the Spirit bringing life. There's an incredible contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And as we look through it, it can be an encouragement to us because we know that the Spirit is with us. We know that the Spirit doesn't leave us alone. The Spirit encourages us along the way. But we're also given that warning. And again, in verse 5, Paul's aim for his ministry is that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And how is it that we understand the power of God? It's through the Spirit, through His Holy Spirit, which He gave to us. It's an incredible, incredible encouragement. And I think that part of the reason we, we lack true understanding of what the Spirit does and that we lack true understanding of the wisdom of God is that we lack the desire at all times, to seek Him in His Word, to read the Scriptures, to understand what it is that God has for us. Once I finally started reading the Bible on my own and not just knowing what my pastor would tell me, 
I learned so much more about God in the first month than I had up to that 17 years of my life. Because it was a desire to learn and to understand. I was intentionally seeking him out. And he tells us, if you seek, you will find. There's a promise. So as Paul is writing this, he's rebuking them and he's saying, look, remember Remember what it is that you're doing. Remember that you represent God. Remember that he is the one to receive the glory. Remember not to seek the wisdom of man, not to be like the princes or the rulers of your current time, not to be like a celebrity, not to uplift me, but to give all glory to God, to seek him, to seek his wisdom, to seek after his spirit. The wisdom of this world and the power of this world comes to nothing in verse 6, but to remember the power of God on the cross. And again, Close with verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else was for naught. The whole purpose for Paul was to preach Christ and him crucified. And as believers, that should be our goal as we minister to everybody around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for today. We thank you as we're able to look through this letter. We're thankful for for the inspiration of your spirit as as he inspired Paul to, to write this letter as he's rebuking them and he's saying to them not to strive after the power or the wisdom of man, but to seek you and to seek your spirit. God, we can chase a lot of things in this world and, and the world tells us that we're supposed to, to chase success and, and recognition and glory and money and fame and all of these other things. But you tell us simply to seek you. God, we know that when we're seeking you and that when we find you, that there's blessings that that you give and you take away, but you give so infinitely to us. This morning you've given us an opportunity to, to sing praises to you, to be able to open up your word and to be able to learn be able to learn more about you, that your spirit would reveal more of who you are to us, that, you would, that your spirit would illuminate your word with us. God, the incredible opportunity to, to share your word with a group of believers, with a body, with your church. God, it's so incredible. I just pray that, that we wouldn't take it for granted, that we would, that we would seek after you, that we, would, that we would look to the cross, and that would be our motivation for everything that we do. God, it's my prayer that, that this church and that the members of this church would, would seek to, to boast in nothing but the cross, that preaching your son and him crucified would be the goal, would be the conversation for all of us. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for his role in our lives, and we just pray that you would continue to strengthen us as we, as we pursue you and pursue all of the wisdom that you freely give to us through your spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.